So again, imagine with me a life starting with this. And some of you don't have to imagine this because you might have gone through this with one of your favorite sports teams. Uh, this is not really my story, but I know people who this is their story. Let's say after years and years of a championship drought, and against all odds, your team finally takes home a crown. It's been so long, and it feels so good, because you never thought this would happen again. You thought the drought and your dash hopes that they would last forever. So you and your devoted group of friends, let's imagine equally as zealous and knowledgeable of even the minutest stats and details of your teams and its players, you get together and you throw a massive party. All you talk about during this party is your pride in your team, the trials they, and you by proxy, because you're a fan, endured and overcame. And you're thinking, man, the dynasty is just about to begin. Our team is about to be the team for the next five or ten years. But you hear a knock on the door. You don't remember inviting anybody else besides your friends. And so you walk over, wondering, who's crashing my party? As you open the door, clad in their recently dirty uniforms, in championship regalia, is your team. You've never met any of them this close. You've only ever seen them on TV or far off in the stands. So you're, you're a little thrown off. Like, what are you doing here? Almost as though you don't really recognize them. You, you kind of just want to kind of be with your friends right now. But instead of inviting them in, they who are the reason you're celebrating, because they won, you're just celebrating, you ask them to leave. Like, I already had this plan with my friends, I don't have enough food, I'm sorry, like, you're going to have to go. So you ask them to leave that you might do this. And the team, they're thoroughly confused. Like, I thought they would have loved to have people who actually won the game in front of them and with them. So they walk back to their bus, they drive away, leaving you to party with your friends. You see, this is, this is kind of how John 7 goes. The feast or the party of booze, it's, it's also another way of saying tabernacles. It's usually how the Old Testament talks about this. It's a celebration and remembering the Lord's faithfulness in the wilderness. When they're between homes. Lord, where are we going? Would Jesus, the temple again from John 1, shows up, and they don't only shoo him away, they actively seek to kill him. They'd rather a temporary dwelling place, just like you would rather party without the team who actually won. In the wilderness and without the Lord, than dwelling in the eternal temple who ushers you into his rest. This is the second of three festivals. So John 5 to 10, it tracks three festivals of the Old Testament. 
This is the second one that attracts. And we talked the last two sermons about the Feast of Passover. That's John 5 and 6. Now in John 7, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, the second biggest celebration in the Jewish calendar. And John records each fulfillment in Jesus of the entire festival and sacrificial system of Israel. He's telling you, this one, Jesus, is the fulfillment of everything you've ever wanted. Everything you've celebrated, everything you've looked for, everything you've worked for, all of your hopes and desires, your sins, everything finds its fulfillment in him. And we're going to see this in three points. First is the Feast of Tabernacles, verses 1 through 13. John, or Jesus, travels from Galilee to Jerusalem on the eve of the second biggest festival in the Jewish calendar. There's a lot more festivals, but the big three, again, are Passover, Tabernacles, and First Fruits. The second is the Lord of Tabernacles, verses 14 to 36. If you caught it, Jesus stands right in the middle of the temple, right in the middle of the synagogue, teaching everyone that this is not your home. This is not where you dwell. Because he brings eternal temple, he brings the eternal dwelling to you. And lastly, third, dwelling in the Lord. Verses 37 to 52. And this causes a schism. Because they're all asking the same question that you have to ask and answer. How can I dwell with Jesus? How can I dwell with Jesus? So I pray this becomes clear throughout. Jesus fulfilled the temporary dwelling place with God that you might eternally dwell with him. And so start with point one, Feast of Tabernacles, beginning in verse one. After proclaiming, remember, John 6 is all about the bread of life. Feeding the 5,000, walking on water, and then bread of life. Just after he proclaims that he's the true bread of life, that the ultimate Passover sacrifice, Jesus comes back from Jerusalem or Jerusalem adjacent to Galilee. He's in Capernaum, and he walks around. Now he's back in Galilee. And he's being sought by those who want to persecute him, who want to kill him, the Jews, who want to put him to death, claiming he was the bread. Told them, you saw that, your fathers knew that, that that was me. I'm the one who fed them. I'm the one who feeds you. After claiming that he is fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice and festival, John tells you the next big one is coming in. This is the Feast of Booths. Happens about a month after Passover. They're essentially connected. It's an annual festival that occurs with the Feast of Booths. It occurs after the Feast of Passover, and it's to, it's to remember, to remind the Israelites of their wilderness wanderings when they dwelled in tents. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have anywhere solid to, to worship in up until the time of Solomon. And now they're in these temper, now these, these little tents reminding themselves of the wanderings. And it, it lasts for seven days. The eighth day is the big party. Seven days the only tents. Eighth day is the big party. In verses 3 to 5, however, John's own brothers confront him, or Jesus' own brothers confront him, as he travels to Jerusalem for the festival. He, they're part of the reason he doesn't go. 
They want him to show forth his works. They're basically telling him, or asking him, you know, Jesus, let's stop joking around. Stop hiding. Like, really show yourself. Like, really show your power to these people. Like, really, like, build a following. Like, you're losing way too many people. This is not how you build a big following. People shouldn't want to kill you. They should want to be entertained by you. That's what, they, that's what they're kind of hoping from Jesus. And really, they're, they're tempting Jesus. Death for them seems improper. Like, really, you're the Messiah and you're going to die? You're going to be killed by these authorities? It's going to cut short your, your miracle-working ministries. That's the cool thing. People persecuting you, that's not, that's not the cool thing. That's not what we want our Messiah to do. But they don't believe him. They've got an agenda. And some of you might have an agenda with Jesus. Whether it's political or personal, you kind of bring Jesus alongside of you and say, like, how can he help me? He's got this wide, this bright ministry. I think that could be kind of helpful for myself. Kind of like get my name out there. But Jesus doesn't take their mates. Because his agenda is not wowing you. His agenda is not to make you happy. His agenda is to save you. So Jesus comes back in verses 6 to 7. says, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. He's kind of like, kind of playing with them. Like, you think your time is always here. You think you're going to be here for a long time. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Which is different than what the apostles in the book of Acts say. We're hated, which is why we know that we're part of Jesus. And he's saying, but you're not hated. You should be hated, but you're not being hated. For if Jesus' ministry was purely the performance of signs and miracles, could you really hate him? If he did these big, grand things that made a big public spectacle, he would more, he'd more be like an entertainment than he would be our savior. He's not a magician, and he's not a simple miracle worker. That, like those, those are pr- proliferating in the first century. There's a lot of them. He's like, that's, that's not what I do. So he waits for the crowd and the Jews to simmer down. Because this is not his time. He's like, you don't control me. I control this. I control when I go. So in verses 10 to 13, he eventually makes his way to the feast. Remember, though, where he is going is the heights of the hatred of him. Effectively, everybody hates him there. He's going to Jerusalem with a melting pot of Jewish authority, of Roman authority. That's where he's going. It's where he confronts consoles, and calls out those who've misrepresented the Old Testament, who've misrepresented what he does. And then he might show his fulfillments. The gospel salves to the world's sin problem. Yet, he's veiled. It's kind of like he goes in the back door. He doesn't want people knowing he's there. Because he controls the narrative. He's not being controlled. So you hear in verses 11 to 13 that many expect him 
because they saw him at the Feast of Passover. They're probably thinking, like, he did something at one big feast, he might do something at this big feast. They're unsure what to make of him, which might apply to some of you here today. Like, what, what, do, I, what do I do with this, with this Messiah? Is what Jesus is saying, is it, is it actually true? Does he actually provide what I need? Because that, that means I need something. That it's not just within myself. That I, I need something outside of myself. Because if Jesus, if he doesn't, if he doesn't, if he's not the Christ, if he's not the Messiah, if he's not the one who brings his fulfillments, he's a crazy person. He's out of his mind. He's not just a good moral teacher. He doesn't just give you good platitudes, ways to live by He's not the Messiah. He's a lunatic. He's out of his mind for what he says. So Jesus enters again to another massive festival of the Jews. You can kind of say in our colloquial speech, like he's, he's baiting faith. or baiting faith. He enters again in celebration and remembrance of their wanderings. So what's he going to say? Which brings us to point two. The Lord of Tabernacles. If you look at verses 14 to 15, he enters the temple. Where does he walk? Right smack in the middle. You can't miss him. Doesn't go in the front, doesn't go in the back and talks, kind of skirts into the back door, and then plants himself right in the middle of the synagogue. It says, you can't miss me if I'm here. But again, who is Jesus? He's God incarnate, the second person of the triune Godhead. He's both physically and you can say figuratively centered himself. The same where Yahweh's glory would dwell right in the midst of the tent, right in the midst of the camp, right in the middle of his people Israel, saying, I'm your God, and where I go, you go. And so Jesus is doing the same thing. He's, he's, you can say he's filling the temple. He's filling with his glory right in the middle, his midst to be seen by everybody. So the glory of the temple is now actually in the temple. When Jesus comes in the middle, what does that mean? It wasn't there before. Now he is. How will the people respond? Will they respond with how they should respond? Fearing and trembling the glory of Yahweh is now in our midst. They, they kind of do, but really for all the wrong reasons. They don't say, woe is me, like Isaiah 6, like, I can't handle this glory. They say, he's pretty smart, but he's not gone to school. That's their first response to when Jesus comes in their midst. How is he so well learned? Not, the glory of Yahweh is in my midst. I can't speak and I am undone. But this dude's a lot smarter than he looks. Jesus responds in verses 16 to 20, beginning with a remark concerning their amazement. He's like, you're amazed at this? That's what catches you? How well learned I am? Not that I just fed 5,000 people, that I'm the bread of life, that I'm about to raise on the third day. His learning is, is not because he was taught from another. 
I would assume you could say he had learning to, to have. As all the teachers of law, because they know what that's like. They know what to have teachers trained up to teach them. But he has this because he comes from the Father. You have this filled out in John 5. He speaks as the Father speaks. When the Father speaks, the Son speaks. When the Son speaks, the Father speaks. Because he is the Word. And if you know the Father, you'll recognize Jesus' teaching. But in verse 18, this is contrasting with the teachers of the law surrounding Jesus, listening to him speak, mocking him. And how should they respond when the glory of Yahweh is stationed right in the middle of the synagogue? They should be worshiping. Or they should be cowering because the glory is right in front of them. But they mock him. And so he's calling them out. He says, you speak from what you know, literally, because you, you learned this, so you're trying to speak from what you learned. But your speaking is not to glorify the Lord. Your speaking is to try to convince others that you're really smart, that you know your stuff. You're looking for glory, for adulation, for the admiration of all those listening. Like, wow, that guy sounds holy. But not that guy's Lord sounds holy. You get your glory from them. What does that mean? You don't get it from God. You just get it from man. But Jesus speaks from the Father. And the Jewish leaders, they claim Moses is their father, their teacher in John 5, right at the end of John 5. And so Jesus calls them out on that same point. He says, you say this, let me use that against you. The law given through Moses by Yahweh manned you to work perfect righteousness, never to miss a mark. God, you everything perfectly all the time, all your life. You fulfill every piece of law every day of your life without fail or the slightest deviation. And Jesus says, that's what the law of Moses requires of you. It's not so you can compare yourself to your friends and say, I'm really holy, you're kind of working on it. And yet in verse 19, none of you keeps the law. What is he calling them? You're not a Christian. You don't believe anything. You don't believe Yahweh. You think you can work towards this. And yet you seek to kill Jesus. He who keeps the law. He who keeps the law killed by those who don't keep the law. It's the irony of all ironies. You want to kill the one who keeps the law, and you're not keeping the law. And yet you blame others for not keeping the law. Almost as if the crowd is caught between a rock and a hard place. They answer back, you guys are, well, you got a demon. They just like try to bring something out, like as if that's going to that's gonna indict Jesus. When Jesus knows what's the end of John 6, like 15 verses before this, he knows who has the demon. Because he allows it. He's like, yeah, I kind of got him in my back pocket. I'm going to use him later on. So Jesus responds in verses 21 to 24. You think multiplying the bread at the Passover was big? Like, oh, buddy, you got, you got something else cooking for you. You see nothing yet. 
Because he's talking about his resurrection. He follows with a seemingly odd connection, though, if you, if you heard it, between circumcision and healing. But he's making a pretty crucial point. Because when is circumcision performed? It's on the eighth day, which is the Sabbath, at least in Abraham. It was also the sign of entrance. This is how you entered into the covenant community. This is how you became a member of this church. And so is healing. Because can anybody with any sort of malady, either leprosy, discharge of blood, disease, lameness, can they enter into the tent? Can they worship? They're out. They can't do anything. So he has to heal them so that they can worship. So that they can enter into the covenant community. And like I said, circumcision was performed the eighth day after birth. When is the Feast of Tabernacles? If you read Leviticus 23, when does it end? The eighth day. There's seven days of wilderness wanderings. The eighth day is when they conclude. And so they're condemning Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. And it misses the facts that he's always worked on the Sabbath. He's God. He upholds the world on the Sabbath. Sabbath wouldn't exist if he didn't. So though it looks good to condemn him to others who observe the same law, that's why he says, you're looking for righteousness in all the wrong places. You're doing it to look good in front of your friends who also think the same thing that you do. And so I'm saying, I'm doing what God told me to do. From God. And so many wonder in verses 25 to 26, why might the Jews seek to kill this man if he's the Christ? This doesn't look good because they can't answer him. There's nothing. So the irony of verse 27 is extraordinarily thick. They know Jesus' earthly parents. They've got no mistake about it. They know it's Joseph and Mary. They know his earthly birth. How might this be the Messiah? They ask, they say, we know where he comes from. It's because that's where the Messiah comes from. They're kind of expecting a negative response when they're dead on. They're, they're almost like they don't know what they're asking because it's right. And so he lifts up his voice in verses 28 to 30 that he indeed was born of flesh and blood because Messiah has to be born of flesh and blood. But his message does not come from flesh and blood. He's been eternally with the Father because his message comes from his heavenly Father. And then temporarily, or at least in temporal time, took on flesh and blood. He's still flesh and blood to this day. His physical birth on earth. So he takes on human flesh because he had to be born of a human. And he knows the Father because he was with him before his birth and continues to be the second person in the Trinity. When he takes on human flesh, it's not like he takes away his father and says, I, don't no longer, I no longer know you. He's still the second person, but no enfleshed second person. 
And so they seek to kill him because they see him, they hear him saying, you're God, but you're a human. You're human, but you say you're God. And he says, but this hour has not yet come when they seek to kill him and he evades them. He's like, you can't get me if I don't want to be God. You can't arrest me if I don't want to be arrested. It's not my time. It's not my time to be fulfilled to be arrested. He determines when he's arrested. And it's working on God's perfect plan. This is his father's plan he's fulfilling. And he's perfectly in agreement because he's of the same divine essence of his father. That's how they agree. So many believed on him on account of these words in verses 31 to 32. But not the Pharisees and the high priests. Who are they in charge of? They're over the temple. They're over this man-made temporary temple. And they're the ones who don't believe in the temple. Whom they are celebrating. This is the celebration of the temple. The celebration of the tabernacle. And they don't believe the temple. Again, it's the irony of all ironies. They miss the temple for the temple. They miss the heavenly temple for the earthly temple. Jesus, the true temple in John 1, will not dwell in this earthly temple much longer. So he's saying, I'll be with you for a little, bit, for a little time, but for not much longer. For he's going back to his heavenly temple soon. You will seek me, but not find me. It's not because he's hard to look for. Because if you're not born of a heavenly birth, you can't find him. You can't go. It's not unability, it's impossibility. They don't have entrance. You can't get in. So in pure confusion in verses 35 to 36, everyone wonders, well, then where is he going? If I can't find him, is he going off into the, to the Greek dispersion? The kind of the intermingling of the Jews and the Greeks, where the, the Jews were persecuted, put into Greek areas. Is that where he's going? Is Jesus going outside of Jerusalem into this dispersion? And it's not because you won't find him because it's too difficult. It's because you're unable to find him. Because it's impossible outside of the heavenly birth. So the question remains, how can you dwell with the Lord, with the incarnate Jesus, the true temple, when we're in this earthly temple, or in our earthly dwellings? Last point, dwelling in the Lord. And so we come in verse 37 to the last day of the feast. Last day of the feast was the eighth day. Seven days dwelling in tents, and the big parties on the eighth day. And even the way that John describes John, John 7:37, he uses a phrase that's used a lot in the Old Testament on the last day. It's not used all that often in the New Testament, besides some pretty highly charged statements. Because it's when 
the Lord visits his people. Not just like a visiting after a long weekend away or a long a, a summer away, but it's visiting in judgments and vindication. Coming to those who are judged outside of him and vindicated if you're inside of him. So he stands up, Jesus does, in the middle of this great feast, and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And you've heard this. This is John 4. He's basically restating what he told the Samaritan woman. Jesus, the true temple, the refulgent, the, the radiating glory of Yahweh in human flesh, proclaims essentially the same thing he did to the Samaritan woman. If you drink of me, you will never thirst again. You will never be parched again. Eternal satisfaction offered on the last day of the feast, the eighth day. This living water flowing with radiant and glowing rivers is also an explicit allusion to the temple and the prophets. He used the same exact phrase. Remember the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, what does it have flowing out from it? It's got four rivers flowing out from it, irrigating everything around it. Zechariah 14 has the same image. These flowing rivers coming out from the temple, when Yahweh visits his people to proclaim his kingdom rest. This is right in the middle of Zechariah 14. Feeds his people with eternal streams. And then Zechariah just outright says it in verses 6 and 19. That happens on the Feast of Tabernacles. He says it. The Lord is going to feed his people living water on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. As if John is now describing what Zechariah has already said. He's now saying, Yahweh as Jesus. As Jesus in human flesh. And Isaiah promises the same thing in, in Isaiah 44, 3. These rivers flowing from the temple upon a dry and parched land. Because that's Jerusalem. They're parched. Their leaders don't believe. They have no word. They're wondering, when's Yahweh coming? When's he going to fill me? And you might think to say, Yahweh, when are you going to fill me? This is a dry and parched land. Are you coming soon? You get this when you trust in Jesus. It's not just Bible speak. You actually get this. You get the living waters flowing into you. And so how do you respond? How did the people respond in verses 40 to 42? This is the prophet Moses promised. Same thing they say at the beginning of John 6, after defeating the 5,000. This is the promised prophets. It's not wrong, but it's not wholly, completely right. Others confessed, this is the Christ. You're like, you nailed it. It's exactly who he is. But there are one of three parties who respond. The last one, and again, it's, it's like asking a question that you think the answer is no, but the answer is actually yes. They ask, but does the Christ from, come from Galilee? Because their implied answer is like, well, no. Doesn't, from, doesn't come from Galilee. And you're like, well, yes, he does. 
Because that's Christ. But they think the answer is no. Like, surely, holy God in his heavenly tabernacle, heavenly temple, he's not coming down to earth. He's not coming down to this gross, sin-stained place. He's going to stay out in heaven. He wants nothing to do with us sinful humans. And then others ask, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And you're like, yes, he does. But the way the question's posed is they're expecting a negative answer. Again, they're expecting, no. There's no way. There's no way David's kingly prophet, priest, king, son is coming down to earth to dwell with us sinners. There's no way. He might come and take that Rome, but us sinners, like, he might like, maybe have a second to talk to us, but that's not what he's going to do. And so a great schism between these various factions breaks out between the people in verses 43 to 44. Someone to seize him to death, or someone to seize him and put him to death, but they can't do anything. The guards and the Pharisees and the high priests who were originally sent out to go find him, arrest him and put him to death, they report back to the high priest and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the high priests question them, saying, where is Jesus? Didn't arrest him, didn't bring him to us, like, didn't do your job. That's what we paid to do. But then the guards, they catch a glimpse of Jesus' glory. They said, no one's ever spoken like this. Who are they talking to? They're teachers. Those who've taught them the law for years and years and years. They're saying, you don't speak like this. You don't have that kind of authority. They're saying without saying it, he speaks as one with authority. Which is telling them, you don't. You have no authority. So the Pharisees and the high priests are incredulous. And they, they can't believe those whom they sent to seize Jesus are starting to believe in Jesus. And so they blame this on the ignorance of the crowds. Like, have they never heard the law of Moses? Have you been deceived by this guy too? When Jesus does not cast out the law, he told everyone, you've broken it. It's like, that's actually, you don't understand the law of Moses. You actually think it's too easy. I'm telling you, it's impossible. You need me who is obeying it. So man, we have not seen since John 3 shows back up. Caution the Pharisees and the high priest to follow due process of love. Because this is the top dog. They go to him. Nicodemus, who confronted Jesus and was shown in his unbelief, now confronts the Pharisees and the high priests of their unbelief. They assume Nicodemus is in cahoots with Jesus. Are you also one of these Galilee guys? Are you following this one? I thought, I thought you were our leader. I thought, I thought you believed the same stuff we do. Because surely, they think, Nicodemus 
is too rational to believe this. He's too smart. He knows law too well to believe in Jesus. So why is he being duped to? And as Nicodemus seems to realize his temporary earthly dwelling place, celebrating during the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what they're celebrating. It can't hold up. He can't stay there. Nicodemus can't fulfill the law. You can't fulfill the law. He can't stay in this earthly dwelling place, and you can't either. His security on earth is not eternal. Because Jesus proclaims that he is the true temple. You dwell temporarily on earth, because that's supposed to point you to eternal, to eternal temple and dwellings. It says, don't just stick with this temporal wilderness wandering. You who are wanderers and sojourners in this land, in this land right now, as Paul or as Peter calls you, you're like the exiles wandering this land, dwelling in this earthly wilderness. Do you know your true home? Do you know your true dwelling place? Is your dwelling place with Jesus, who has come and entered you into his temple? Who came down from his temple and says, let's go back up. Let's go back up to that temple. But we are always on the move. And we spend a lot of time trying to make our earthly temple really, really pretty. Because we want to stay in here as long as possible. And so you're probably still searching for rest. If you're trusting in Jesus, you drink this river of life. You don't have to go and get it. It's already, it's already in you and coming to you. That's yours. When Jesus says, I am the river, I am the one who feeds you, I'm, I'm the temple with rivers drawing out from it, feeding you, you're already feeding on that if you trust in Jesus. And you feed on it in the wilderness, here, right now. You're promised this temple, which you taste by faith now, and you will dwell in eternity. In this earthly wasteland, this our, our temporary pilgrimage, is, as we <laughs> don't usually celebrate, we, we don't like, you're promised this temple. But by trusting in Jesus, all this wasteland, all this wilderness is for you, as Israel so longed for, and as they celebrated, Jesus promises, he gives it to you. All this earthly wasteland is just a way station. It is waiting for your eternal home. For entering this heavenly temp temple will be glory beyond anything you've ever experienced in this temporary life. And it's going to make that, that golden temple that we walk into, it's going to make it feel really good after living in ramshackle tents. Jesus takes upon himself, because remember, where does he leave? He leaves the heavenly temple to the earthly temple and then brings you back to his heavenly temple. He leaves it so that you can get it. He separates from his temple. He takes on human flesh and says, I will dwell in this earthly temple so that my people can dwell in the heavenly temple. And you get that by believing in Jesus. He takes upon himself 
your wilderness wanderings and fulfills everything by leaving to bring you in. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you don't just leave to leave, you leave to fulfill and to bring us up. You took upon yourself the scorn, the reproach, the persecution, the death so that you might raise as the priest of the tabernacle, of the temple. That you dwell there and you don't just invite us, you bring us into the temple. Because you left it, you fulfilled everything, and you brought us home. Lord, and that is where we are now. We have this as a promise, and we will be there when either we die or you come again. Lord, that is ours, because you've given it to us. May these celebrations and festivals remind us that we who dwell in the wilderness will one day go under temple. And we thank you, we praise you all this your son's name. Amen.